Good morning, everyone. My name is Winona Wolf, and I work at Kids Forward, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization here in Madison that works to inspire action and promote access to opportunity for every child, every family, and every community in the state. Many of you may know us as Home to the Race to Equity Project. This summer, Kids Forward launched Race to the Polls, a campaign aimed to make racial justice a priority this election cycle and beyond. We all know Wisconsin will thrive when everyone is thriving, including its communities of color. But hundreds of years of oppression, institutionalized racism, and the intentional removal of resources have resulted in alarming racial disparities in health, education, child welfare, criminal justice, employment, and income for Wisconsin's communities of color. Wisconsin can do better. Wisconsin must do better. In order to be a state where every child, every family, and every community thrives, and a state with a robust economy, the persistent racial disparities that plague Wisconsin must be addressed. We all have a role to play in addressing these problems, and there's no better place to start than at the polls. Our schools, our community, and our economy will be better when every person in the state has access to opportunity. But in order to achieve this, our lawmakers must stand up for racial justice and advance policies that promote racial equity. Having grown up on an American Indian reservation in northern Wisconsin, I grew up with a different understanding and outlook of the democratic process. You see, our doors weren't knocked on by candidates running for office, nor was our community center visited by the local mayor or the state representative or those running to be governor. Why not? because our vote didn't matter. Throughout the course of history, federal and state policies have ripped American Indian families apart, relocated natives far away from their homes and their communities, and our land was stolen and, and, was stolen and our communities parceled into small areas, leaving us with small populations and very little political power. So with no value to a person's campaign, we were often overlooked, a common and reoccurring theme since 1492. However, the decisions made by those representing us and the decisions by other elected officials often had and continue to have a direct and devastating impact on my community. When you talk about poor policies that hurt the well-being of children and families, that hurt is felt ten times more on the reservation than it is felt by white residents in neighboring communities. And the research and data that we do at Kids Forward tells us that disparities that are harming the well-being of Native communities in Wisconsin are also harming other communities of color throughout the state. The decisions, the inactions, the ignorance, the greed, and the fear of many of those people who we call leaders at our state capital and in our nation's capital are killing black, brown, and indigenous people in our state. But we're not going to let that happen anymore. Our voice will be heard and we're going to change the course of this nation. It's time that we acknowledge that this country and its prosperity was built on the backs of black, brown, and indigenous people. It's time our country come to terms with the genocide of indigenous people, the slavery of African-American people, the profit of the Latino people, and the inhumane treatment of all people of color. And it's time that each and every one of us work to dismantle the systems that oppress so many of us. So where can you start? Talk about race and ethnicity. Educate yourself about all of Wisconsin's communities of color, 
their culture, their resilience, and the issues that are important to them. And vote. And vote for candidates that prioritize racial justice. Also, I ask that all of you do one thing before you leave this conference. Show your commitment to racial justice by signing the Race to the Polls pledge while at the conference. You can find pledge cards and information about the campaign at a table just outside of those doors. It takes just a few minutes to fill out the pledge, so please take a minute to stop. This election cycle, you have the power to help make every voice in Wisconsin heard. Hola, buenos días. Uh, good morning. My name is Eugenia uh, Maria Jailan Granados, and I'm here. Uh, well, I'm director for the Restorative Justice Department here at the YWCA. And I'm going to stop very briefly, but uh, I would like to share with you a very important, to announce a very important event that is going to happen in November. So in partnership with our, uh, well, beautiful friends and partners from MSD, Briar Patch, and Time Bank. We are bringing uh, Fania Davis, Angela Davis' sister. Fania Davis is a leading and national voice on restorative justice. Um, she's gonna come here in November 8th uh, to the Overture Center. Um, the event is from 10 to 12. You have information in your booklets about Fania, but I would like to just read a little bit about Fania Davis. She's a leading national voice on restorative justice, a quickly emerging field which invites a fundamental shift in the way we think about and do justice. Restorative justice is based on a desire to set off principles and practices to mediate conflict, strengthen community, and repair harm. She is a longtime social justice activist, civil rights trial attorney, restorative justice practitioner, writer, and scholar with a PhD in indigenous knowledge. Um, yesterday we heard uh, we heard am amazing Shaq DeBolter talk about healing, um, and uh, and Fania also talks about the need of uh, being warriors and healers at the same time, and we need to build and create spaces for healing. So. I would like to invite you all to come uh, on November 8th uh, to the Overture and listen to Fania speak about what is restorative justice and what is not. We need to have that all, the, everybody here in this community, that clear. Um, the theme of this talk is reclaiming our humanity. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's what I'm talking about right now. Thank you very much. One last announcement I forgot to announce earlier is that we do have a step and repeat by the elevator, so please stop by and take photos and selfies and hashtag. All right. So now it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Benita L. Love. Uh, Dr. Love, I love to say that, Dr. Love. Dr. Love is an award-winning author and associate professor of education educational theory and practice at the University of Georgia. Her research focuses on the ways in which urban youth negotiate hip-hop music and culture to form social, cultural, and political identities to create new and sustaining ways of thinking about urban education and intersectional social justice. 
Her research also focuses on how teachers in schools working with parents in communities can build communal, civically engaged, anti-racist, anti-homophobic, and anti-sexist educational equitable classrooms. For her work in the field in 2016, Dr. Love was named the Nasser Jones Hip Hop Fellow at the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research at Harvard University. She is also the creator of the hip hop civics curriculum, Get Free. In April of 2017, Dr. Love participated in a one-on-one -on -one public lecture with Bell Hooks focused on deliberatory education practices of black and brown children. Dr. Love is one of the field's most esteemed educational researchers in the area of hip hop education for elementary age students. She is the founder of Real Talk, hip-hop education for social justice, an after-school initiative aimed at teaching elementary students the history and elements of hip-hop for social justice through project-based learning. Dr. Love is one of the founding board members of the Kendenzi School, an innovative school focused on small classrooms and art-based education. Finally, she is the author of the book, Hip-Hop's Little Sisters Speak, Negotiating, negotiating hip-hop identities and politics in the New South. Her work has appeared in numerous reviews and journals and books, including the English Journal, Urban Education, the Urban Review, and the Journal of LGBT Youth. She is currently working on her second book, We Want to Do More Than Survive, a pedagogy of mattering, which you will hear more about today. Please join me in welcoming Bettina Love. What's up, y'all? Y'all look good. So um, I know it's 9 o'clock your time, but it's 10 o'clock my time, so I'm already turned. Um, so I'm just going to be live up here. I know it's 9 o'clock. Wake up. Uh, we got serious to talk about, so let's get it going. Um, so what I want to talk about today is the idea of, of doing more than just surviving. The idea that black and brown folks and indigenous folks in this country are in a perpetual state of survival mode. And this is a life of exhaustion. So how do we get out of survival mode? So I'm going to talk today, I'm going to kind of riff off my new book uh, called We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching. And the idea is that we all have to become abolitionists because we are in revolutionary times. And so I want to start... Um, See if all my technology gonna work. We'll see. Oh, we working today. Okay. So I want to start with this idea of what Du Bois said in 1926. Du Bois says this. What do we want? What is this thing we are after? We want to be Americans, full-fledged Americans with all the rights of other American citizens. But is that all? Do we simply want to be Americans? Once in a while, through all of us, there are flashes of some clairvoyance, some clear idea of what America really is. We who are dark can see America in a way that white Americans cannot. And seeing our country, thus are we satisfied with its present goals and ideas. We who are dark. So what does that mean? That means believe black and brown folks, folks the first time. When you got 400 years of receipts, Receipts. 
And we say, you know what? That's racist. We don't need you to say you think. I don't know. You don't know. I got 400 years. In 2019, it will be 400 years in this place of fighting racism, of dealing with racism, of watching structures uphold racism. And so we have a different understanding of this place. We who are dark can see America in a way that white Americans cannot. Believe us. Trust us. We know what we're talking about. If you have 400 years of receipts, would you deny that? So the idea is that what do we want? What is this thing we are after? And what I think we are after is to matter. And to matter by understanding that we never have. And so I'm an educator. Before I was a college professor and got my, my letters behind my name, um, so I could be called Dr. Love, that was intentional. I, um, <laughs> it was intentional. I, uh, I've, been, I've been thinking about this idea of education. And we all, at some point, whether you're a teacher or you're not a teacher, you have to understand that educational justice is a part of this movement. There is no housing justice, there is no queer justice, there is no citizenship justice without educational justice. We are a part of this. And to understand that we have never had educational justice in this country. And what we have had is that individuals profit off of a narrative that black and brown kids can't succeed in schools. And so what I'm calling this is the educational survival complex, which means that education keeps black and brown kids and indigenous kids in perpetual survival mode. And then they profit off of our suffering. So let me break this down. Native Americans, they were told that their language, that their culture, that their ways of being were savages and put into boarding schools and taken away from their parents. Then we talk about English-only education. That movement started in the 1880s. Then we go to separate but equal, for real? That don't even make no sense. Then segregated schools for Chinese, Japanese, and Korean students. We don't understand that the idea of the model minority was created for anti-blackness. Japanese, Korean students were not even allowed to go to schools in places like California. And then we go to Brown versus the Board of Education. Now we move into current day. 1980s, we started to talk about charter schools and character education. How does the oppressor get to tell you about your character? You have no right to judge our character. How do you build a country for free and then they're going to measure your grit? The idea is that now we have folks like Teach for America. And the mantra is that these black children in these communities, they need you because if you're not there, what's going to happen? And then you profit off of our suffering. So the more that we don't achieve, the better your organization needs. We need you. So that means that if you ever had an education that for us was to thrive, then Teach for America wouldn't be here. Do you understand what I'm saying? That if charter schools, 
Teach for America, Bellwether, the list goes on and on and on. If black schools and brown schools were thriving, they would have no business. Sounds like prisons. Then you move to, like, no child left behind. I got ahead of myself. Hold on. What are we going to do? Let's see. So then we move to, like, no child left behind in the 2000s, which left all the child behind. <laughs> then we go to 2018, and here we are. But Betsy DeVos, as our Secretary of Education, a someone who doesn't even believe in public education. Corporate school reformers. That's what they call themselves. Corporate school reformers. Reform. That doesn't go together. I can't even say it. You can't be corporate and school. And then you reform what actually? This is the stuff they have us talking about. And then, do we simply want reform or do we want freedom? That has, to be a, that has to be a constant question you're asking yourself. Because reforming the system, that means they're going to tweak it in their best interest. I'm going to reform it so I can get paid. It's a key to disaster capitalists. These folks who are in Puerto Rico... All of a sudden, 3,000 individuals die on our soil. And now the floodgates of capitalism have come open. Understand how they consistently profit off of dark suffering, and that is happening in our schools every day with testing companies, with all, with all these consultants. What you, what, what you consulting? You ain't even teach. How are you consulting me? I've been in the classroom for 15 years, and here you come with an MBA consulting me about my classroom? Girl, stop. <laughs> hedge fund operators. Do you know that every significant hedge fund in this country has one or two charter schools in its portfolio? Because your taxes drop from 20% to 3 Because you are investing in nonprofits and urban areas. So any hedge fund manager that's worth his weight or her weight is investing in charter schools because that's where they can hide their money. And that's where they don't pay taxes. And then you have the testing, which makes $2 billion a year and invests $45 million a year in lobbying. You have the prisons, which makes $70 million a year. $70 billion, excuse me, dollars a year. And invests hundreds in the idea of lobbying to stay, understanding that we are in a constant mode of survival in ideas of education. Education has never been about black and brown folks and indigenous folks thriving because Nelson Mandela said this, education is the most powerful weapon we can use to change the world. So when are they going to weaponize our kids? And so I want to start by harping on this idea of the bait and switch that we have going on right now. Civics education to now character education. And so we are in a divisive time in our society. I don't think anybody, if you just watch a clip of the news, whether it's Fox or CNN, you know we're divisive. But there used to be a time in this country where we actually taught civics. And so there's great research that says we don't have just an achievement gap, which we really don't have, I'll get you later, but we have a civic empowerment gap. So what is civics? 
They would like you to believe that civics is just voting, but that's not civics. Civics education are informed and thoughtful, have a grasp and an appreciation of history and the fundamental process of American democracy. That used to be the civics we used to teach. Number three, act politically by having the skills, knowledge, commitment needed to accomplish public purposes, such as group problem solving, public speaking, petitioning, protesting, and voting. Voting was last. This is the civic education we used to have. We used to make sure kids got together who did not look like each other, who could problem solve, understand a situation, come to a compromise, and move forward for the good of the world. That used to be our civics education. Now, we moved on to this idea of personal responsibility civics, which is the low-level hanging fruit of civics education, which means this. Uh, to be a good citizen, you obey laws. You volunteer every now and then. You work and you pay your taxes, and you never ask questions. But we know to be a good citizen means not only that you do pay taxes and you obey laws, but you seek out and understand areas of injustice. You explore why people are hungry and act to solve those root causes. So this is the new civics education that we have in schools now. There's a food drive. Okay. You get the food, you get it, and then you get it all prepared. You take it, you drop it off, you take your selfie, <laughs> and then you don't talk to the kids about why we have to do this every year. There is a pattern of food scarcity for these particular people, but dropping off that food, yes, is what we need, but it doesn't get to the root cause. And it does not help them understand patterns of injustice. This is the civics education that we are doing, but this is the education that lulls these kids to sleep. And so that's why racism and people who are racist are not vampires. I've always heard all my life, once all the old white men die, we won't have to worry about this. Well, are they vampires? How long are they living? How will this thing just keep being reproduced? It's baffling to me because it reproduces itself. And education is supposed to be an intervention that weaponizes this. But our kids are stuck in survival mode. Schools should not mimic society. Schools should be better than society. That's what we should be thinking. But here we are, dropping off the food. Never get into this idea of trying to solve and have difficult conversations in our classrooms. Give you an example. After Mike Brown was shot in Ferguson, nearby school districts told their teachers that they could not talk about it. The silencing of civics, the silencing of problem solving, the silencing of helping our kids understand the world and to read the world, and to understand what's going on around them. This is what it means to be a good citizen. This is what civic education used to be. But because they want us in perpetual survival mode, they're not teaching our students any longer about how to make this world a better place. And then you have the KIPPS. 
I'm sorry if anybody teach you at Kip, no shade but shade. I like to call these folks like the, the educational parasites because they thrive on us not achieving. So, Kip has something called character counts. This is the bait and switch of civics education. We no longer teach civics, we teach character. And the idea is that we can always judge a child's character. And now they're measuring students' zest. That's a bar of soap. <laughs> but, I mean, that's what they want to do. I mean, that's what they're going to do. They're measuring their grit. And the idea from folks who have New York Times best-selling books, got a lot of PhDs, is that the grittiest kids will be the most successful. I'm a black woman standing here in front of you in the United States of America. How in the world can you measure my grit? The idea that you are going to measure the grit of black and brown children lets me understand you have no historical context of what we've been through. None. You think this just, you, you think you can just measure our grit from the jump and not have any foundation of what has happened to us? They're going to measure our grit. I like to call this the Hunger Games. Because you sit back and you want to see if we can jump through all the hoops instead of removing the hoops. This is the Hunger Games. In Georgia, they have something called beating the odds. And they rank schools if they can beat the odds. Won't you just remove the odds? You ain't got to rank me to see if I can do it. Just remove it. But y'all want to measure folks' zest and grit and optimism. My optimism? Do you understand how happy black folks really are? Could you imagine if we were mad in the ways we rightfully should be mad? Oh, y'all don't want that. They want to measure our self-control. Our self-control? Why do black people run when they laugh? I still don't understand that. But <laughs> that idea that you're going to measure our self-control. We walk through this world with the grace. What is it like when they go low, we go high, I go petty, but that's just me. <laughs> but the idea is that we walk in this world with so much grace, so much self-control. And you got the nerves to measure that? Again, with no... Historical context. What else they got? Gratitude. Our social intelligence. Our curiosity. I'm curious about a lot of things. You're going to remove racism? Oh, you can't be curious about that. These are the things they're taking into these schools to try to tell us what we don't have. And I got a great friend. His name is Jonathan Edwards, and he drew this for me to try to explain what I'm trying to say. This is Tasha. She goes to the Grit Public Charter School. <laughs> Just went part of Tasha? Resilience and a positive attitude guarantees success. Now, Tasha is swimming against the tide. And in this country, we don't get handouts. Right? This is, you get this on your own merit. And so what we got are more slogans for Tasha. No excuses. Play hard, work hard. 
You can be anything you want to be. Tasha can be anything she wants to be. She's swimming in the water with, sna- with sharks. And those sharks are racism. They're poverty. They're her proximity to violence. And they're, that is an education system only concerned with making sure that she can survive. Not that she ever thrives. And what we know now is good research shows that these kids that we only give the slogans to, they grow up now upset and angry because they don't understand why I'm not everything they said I could be. There's a concept called uh, system justification, which means I believe the system is just. I believe the system is fair. So when something doesn't work for me, it cannot be the system. It has to be me because I've never been taught to critique the system. And so these young kids who've grown up through these charter schools that have been told no excuses, you can do it, just work hard, and don't have any type of language to deconstruct and problematize what is actually happening to them in their communities, they are now self-destructing. Because they don't understand how their communities are intentionally gutted. They don't understand how when they apply to school, they don't get in, and they don't understand that it could be just your name. Or that when you apply for a job, you don't get it, but your other uh, white peer gets the job, and you say to yourself, must be something I did. But we have the same exact thing, so it must be something I did. Because you believe the system is just, and you believe the system is fair. And so we have to make sure that we have kids who understand of all complexions and all ethnicities, of all religions, how to critique the system. Because I think we are right where James Baldwin said in a talk with teachers. Uncle Jimmy said this. Let's begin by saying that we are living through various dangerous times. Everyone in this room, in one way or another, I was aware of that. We are in a revolutionary situation, no matter how unpopular the word, the word has become in this country. To any citizen of this country who figures himself as responsible, and particularly for those who deal with the minds and the hearts of young people, it is time, it is time to go for broke. Or put it another way, you must understand that in an attempt to correct so many generations of bad faith and cruelty, when it is operating not only in the classroom, but in society, you will meet, you will meet the most fantastic, the most brutal, the most determined resistance. There is no point in pretending this won't happen. Uncle Jimmy said this in 1963, a talk to teachers. To any citizen of this country who figures himself as responsible, particularly for those who deal with the minds and the hearts of young people, must be prepared to go for broke. So I say this to you. Education can save us. We have to save education. It is not our savior. It is as broken as any of these other systems that we talk about. But if we are going to save ourselves, we must think of education as something beautiful to save. And I say that because we have to become abolitionists. 
And now why I say abolition is one, because I'm from Rochester, New York, upstate New York, where it's cold. Y'all think this cold? Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. I'm from Rochester, 90 minutes from Canada. Forget New York City. And Rochester was one of the last stops on the Underground Railroad before those individuals got to Canada. And abolitionists dreamed freedom dreams. Abolitionists did work not for themselves, but for generations of children they would never see. Abolitionists took risks, some small, some big, but they took risks. And abolitionists all did the work under anti-racism. And there was white abolitionists, black abolitionists, indigenous abolitionists working together to free black and brown folks. I believe that we all must try to channel and get back to those very roots of those individuals. Because it is time that we start to take risks for each other. It is time that we start to understand that your fate and my fate are entangled. And although we didn't ask for this, it is entangled. And what are we going to do about it? What risk are we going to take? And some abolitionists cooked. Some abolitionists volunteered. Some abolitionists raised money. Some abolitionists fought. Some abo- it, it's no one way to be an abolitionist, but it is the idea that we are working together to free ourselves. So how do we get back to these ideas of being an abolitionist? First thing, we have to understand how whiteness works. So my good friend, again, Jonathan Edwards, he drew this for me. Uh, he calls it white vision glasses. What do you see? And the idea is that the one reason why we are in a perpetual state of survival as black and brown folks and our children are in a perpetual state of survival in schools is that you don't see their greatness. You don't see what I see. You don't see the beauty and the ingenuity and the creativity that you have in the classroom, that you have right in front of you because of these white vision classes. And let me say this, white vision classes, it's only me for white people. Those glasses are not about a skin color, they're about a construct, an idea that many of us buy into it even when we think we are doing revolutionary work. So what is whiteness? Dyson says this, to be sure, like the rest of race, whiteness is a fiction. Within the jargon of the academy is termed a social construct, an agreed upon myth that has empirical grit because of its effect. Not its essence, but whiteness goes on, but whiteness goes even one better. It is a category of identity that is most useful when its existence is denied. That is the twisted genius of whiteness. Oh, I don't see color. Oh, that's the twisted genius of whiteness. I treat everybody to say, oh, that's the twisted, it doesn't exist. That's how whiteness functions. And so whiteness doesn't let you see what you have in the classroom. You already got it. What we say we want, we already have. If you go to any school's mission statement, they'll tell you they want these things. And I'm here to tell you that if you understand black and brown children, what you say you want, you already got. Now, I'm a hip-hop scholar. That's what I do. I I love hip-hop. I've studied hip-hop all my life. I can't rap, I can't dance, but I'm here. (laughs) Right? Because it's culture, and I'm going to tell you about that in a second. So 
critical thinking and problem solving. You want kids to have critical thinking and problem solving. I know kids uh, who can get up, get their cousins dressed, their little sisters dressed, get them all ready to go, get to school, pass out the lunch money, got everything to go. But they don't got no critical thinking and problem solving skills. Because it's not on your test. Or critical thinking and problem solving skills. Um, for shorthand, that's called being a person of color. You know the hoops we got to jump through? You know how you have to walk in that room and make sure that everybody in that room is cool, it's okay. Okay, I'm going to be the only black person in this room. How am I going to present myself? How am I going to do these things? Let me figure out how I'm going to have my hair. You don't think we got critical? That's called critical thinking and problem solving skills and, and social and emotional intelligence. If you've never seen hip hop, you've seen hip hop cipher. And those are young kids in a circle, which is very indigenous. And they're battling to be the best rapper, to be the best dancer. And let's say a young, a young lady wants to enter the cypher. How does she know to enter the cypher? Does she raise her hand? Can I rap third? Can I, can I, third, third please? How does she enter the cypher? She just does. And she feels that everything, she has to remember everything that's been said, because you can't repeat nothing. She's got to use her best lyrics at the right time. And she's engaged and listening to every single word that her peers are saying. That is self-evaluation and peer evaluation at its finest. But when she walks in the classroom, she has a social emotional intelligence. Mm. Grit and optimism, self-advocacy, research skills. Ask these kids about their favorite rapper. They will tell you everything but their social security number. <laughs> but they got no research skills. Creativity. country profits off of black folks and brown folks creativity I keep a running tab of how much the Kardashians owe me I'm up to about 2.2 million a running tab of how much they owe me to say we have no creativity you looking for black our creativity look up turn the TV on but then the idea is that when you have your white vision glasses on, you can't see these things. And then we take all the language over the oppressor. We have at-risk students. At-risk of what? They never tell you. Let's just finish the sentence. They're at-risk. Oh, okay. They're, under, uh, they're underserved. By whom? They never tell you by whom. They say underserved. Well, who did it? I would like to know who's underserved, but I would like to know by whom are they being underserved by. They never tell you that. Uh, achievement gap. Achievement gap? So you mean to tell me you get a 400-year start and then you say it's a gap? That's like, I'm, that's like I owe you a dollar. I owe you two dollars and you gave me a dollar back. I want another dollar. That's a gap. But you created that gap. Many scholars say that we don't have an achievement gap. We have an opportunity gap. We got first-generation college students. Oh, there's that first-generation college students. They're not first-generation college students. They're the first group you let in. We could have been here already. So it's not first-generation. It's the first group you let in. See, how, if you understand how they have us using their words, and they, they split with it. Oh, these students are at risk. At risk of what? We have to be thinking and the and Language is such a powerful thing. 
Because when they can get us to buy into their language, they get us to act in a particular way. And then you got little kids who are resistors and abolitionists. This, was, this went around the Internet. It went viral. This was King Johnson, third grader, last year. Today was not a good day of learning. Blah, blah, blah. I only wanted not to hear you talking. <laughs> you said something wrong, and I can't listen when I hear lies. My mama said the only Christopher we acknowledge is Wallace. Now, for folks in the room that don't know who that is, Christopher Wallace is Biggie Smalls. So he just said that the only Christopher my house acknowledges is Christopher Wallace. Okay. I didn't find, uh, Christopher Columbus didn't find this country. The Indians did. I like to have Columbus Day off, facts. I want you not to teach me lies. That is all. My question for the day is, how can white people teach black history? King Johnson. It's King. Third grade. Now his teacher. Now remember, I'm petty. Okay. His teacher. King. No comma. No comma. Okay. Red mark, but king. I'm very disappointed in your journal today. Disappointed? Everything you say you want, he just gave you creativity, grit, problem solving, social responsibility. Everything you say you want, he just gave you. And then the social and emotional intelligence of King. King didn't go back and forth with her. King said, girl, okay. I'm not going to argue with you. I see that this thing just, you didn't get it. I'm not going to belabor the point. And then he lowercased her. Okay. And you will say that this child is willfully defiant, disobedient, and has no problem solving critical thinking and creativity skills. We can tell by just his teacher's response. You're disappointed? He's doing everything that third graders should do and more. Questioning you. Now, this baby girl. Baby girl comes to the classroom and she just says, oh, your hair is so beautiful. And then teacher goes, baby girls go sit down in the back of the classroom and the teacher starts her day. And then the teacher, he pulls out the iPad to talk about shapes and symmetry. Did you see baby girl? There's no ruler. No one's using a circumference. Now, for some folks in the room that may not know how this is done. Okay. Baby girl sits down on Friday night. Okay. This is a whole weekend process. So you're talking about folks ain't got no patience. No, 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 no. Okay. You take whatever she had in her hair, you take out Friday night. You start Friday night. And this go, you know, she's going to go play. She's going to go to her cousin's house. She's going to do her thing. But every time you get a chance, you're going to find two, three, four hours, and you're just going to, you know, she might go to, she might go over her cousin's house with half the head done, but she's going to go. And you're going to figure this thing out. And there's three things you need. That's, that's it. This is perfectly symmetry. Everything. You only need three things. Rat tooth comb. Now, depending on your people, 
blue or green grease, depending on your people. And then a classic Negro phrase. You better not move. <laughs> and baby girl, don't move. And the stories that are be passed down this time, the traditions that is passed down at this time. And then what's beautiful about this is that no one's going to teach baby girl how to do it. You don't have time to teach her how to do it. You got to learn to do it yourself. So what does baby girl do? She starts playing in her hair. She figures out the pattern. And then when her little cousin come over, she put her between her knees, and she started doing it in her hair. And that's how it's transformed, just like that. That's the beauty of that. You got to see more than a cute hairdo. You got to see traditions, love, patience, creativity, thought, all of that right there in front of your face. <laughs> and then this. This is right here for my early learning people, my, my folks who are concerned about the youngest. right there but he's doing it on he's doing it on beat and his whole body is engaged now when he goes to school they're gonna say oh you gotta be quiet you gotta do all that banging hanging on. Ah. and what you just said you want he has in 2012 um the national institute of deafness and other communication disorders hooked up 12 mcs and they wanted to understand their uh brain functions where they were freestyling and what they found out was that their prefrontal cortex was off the charts. Your creativity, your emotions, freestyling. So I'm trying to get y'all to understand that what folks say they want in the classroom, they already have, but if you understand culture. Now we have a lot of conversations in education and social justice work about culture. You gotta understand folks, culture. You gotta be culturally relevant. You gotta be, all, culture is all through. But when I ask people what is culture, nobody can tell me what culture is. Well, culture are traditions. Okay, how did you get those traditions? Culture uh, is a way of being. How did you get those ways of being? What is culture? Culture is the social, political, economical, educational circumstances that you they create out of. That's culture. You don't just do something because it's like, oh, let's do it. No, you do it because you are responding to your conditions. 
And then those, that, the way in which you respond becomes something that works, and you keep doing it over and over and over and over again. And then you create a tradition. That's culture. And when you understand black folks and brown folks and indigenous folks' culture, when you understand that we have created in response to always having to survive, and then we find ways to thrive, even in the social, political, economical, educational, political conditions. That's culture. And through that, we teach our kids complex language, shifting abilities, kinesthetic brilliance, improvisation, focus, play, creativity, black joy, and memory. Through our culture. And that's the thing you got to understand, what is in front of you, the beauty that's in front of you. Because this, black style evolves from a cultural willingness to improvise, from a cultural imperative to adapt, in reaction to the rules always changing. So the improvisation is in the culture. But the rules are always changing because the cultural imperative that we adapt. That, that podium right there is a voting booth. Oh, you, you, you're not, you two-fifths a person. What you doing over here? Oh, okay. Oh, poll tax. Okay. Oh, literacy tax. Oh, you got a driver's license? Oh, you don't have a driver's license, but we're going to close all the DMVs around you so you can't get a driver's license. It's called Alabama. So understanding that we always, as black and brown folks, our style, our language, our being is always evolving and always changing because we always have to adapt to the rules always changing in perpetual survival mode. This is no way to live. This is a life of exhaustion, but we do it with so much grace and we do it with so much style that our stories, our songs, our dreams, our social forms, our style of walk, Talk, dressing, cook, sports, and heralds, and heralds provide a record so distinctive and enabling that its origins and culture have been misconstructed as rooted in biology. This is not, this is not biological. I can't dance, so I know it's not biological. <laughs> I learned to let the slide last year. No shade, don't, don't judge me. So I know this is not biological. This is cultural. And the problem that when it's cultural, you begin to think that it's our work as black and brown people to do this. It's not my work. I don't know what you believe, but you can't believe the creator put me here to fight racism. That's racist. My humanity should not always be tied to my fight for my dignity. That's racist. I want to just be. The idea of just being. Can't be there for black and brown indigenous folks. We always got to fight. So when is it going to be everybody's fight? That's what humanity is about. Because Jesse Williams says it best. The thing is, though, the thing is that just because we're magic doesn't mean we're not real. And so understand this, that if you are concerned about being an abolitionist, you must welcome struggle. Struggle has to be something that you welcome. And I'm not saying you welcome struggling, but you have to understand that struggle is innately a part of fighting for justice. If it was as easy as they asking, we would have had it by now. Oh, you just, oh, why did you ask? Carol Anderson says it best. The trigger of white rage inevitably is black achievement. 
It is not the mere presence of black people that is the problem. Rather, it is blackness with ambition, with drive, with purpose, with aspirations, and with demands of full and equal citizenship. That is the problem. When folks are screaming that black lives matter, you will see white rage. When folks are screaming as trans women to exist in this world, you will see white rage. When you see individuals risk it all to be here and their children are put in cages, you will see white rage. It is like clockwork. And we still create. In 2007, the National Geographic did this wonderful spread on hip-hop. And what you see is that no matter what is happening, we will create. They call it slave-era music. That's not a genre, National Geographic. <laughs> just want to just, you know, nobody. You want to do slave-era music? It's not a genre. But I'd like to let me just move on back. Okay, so at every point, but I show this because I want you to understand that this is civics. Those individuals who were doing slave era music used their creativity, their joy, their, their ingenuity to create. Everything they did was to resist white rage. And it was about their ambition, their drive. And if you look on this map, the blues, rhythm and blues, hip-hop, whatever, rhythm and blues, right, I mean, the blues, uh, gospel music, that's slavery. Rhythm and blues, that era is Jim Crow. Hip-hop is globalization and the eroding of urban uh, communities and white flight. And whatever's going to be over there, I don't know, whatever, we, we will create. That's the beauty of this, understanding that white rage is always raging. And the one thing we need you to do is not be an ally anymore. We need you to become a co-conspirator. The word ally is just too soft. Oh, I'm an ally. What you doing? An ally shows up and then shows out sometimes. You can't be my ally. An ally doesn't understand that you have to be a co-conspirator. I'm sorry that it's written in red. It says that a co-conspirator means putting something on the line in the name of justice, wanting dark folk to thrive and giving up power and positions in order for dark folk, for folk to do so. I want to show you a co-conspirator. In 2005, Bree Newsom took down the flag in South Carolina nine days after Dylan Roof went into the EME church and killed those individuals. Now, Bree and some folk and South Carolina decided that they were going to take down that flag. They met, they organized, and they realized that the person that should take down that flag should be a black woman. And then they realized that she couldn't do it by herself. There had to be somebody with some capital standing by her. That's where James Taylor comes in. I mean, James Tyson comes in, white man. And I want you to watch in this video that at a certain point in this video, they, they say to themselves, we have a way to get her down. We will tase the pole. And he begins to hug the pole. Those men, black men and white officers, decided that to get her down, it would be easy. All they would have to do would be to tase the pole. They would not only get her down, they would electrocute her. And 
James being a co-conspirator and understanding his privilege at that very moment, all he simply had to do was this. And stand there as a white man. That's it. He put his two hands on the pole. And at that moment, they knew that they could not change that pole. They knew at that moment that his privilege stopped all of that. That's what it means to be a co-conspirator. To understand your privilege and to put it on the line for people of color. And it don't take much. Oh, J- <laughs> That's all he had to do. They were going to kill that woman. And that co-conspirator just simply said, no, you won't. Understanding the power and the imagery of just a white man standing up for her. And it was calculated. They knew that it had to be him. That's what being a co-conspirator is all about, putting something on the line and understanding when to enter and when not to enter. They knew it had to be a black woman to take that pole down, but they also knew that her co-conspirator had to be somebody with enough capital that they would not kill. That is what this is about. And so abolitionist teaching is built on the creativity, the imagination, the boldness, the ingenuity, the rebellious spirit, and the methods of abolitionists. To build, to demand, and fight for an educational system where all students are not, our students are thriving, not simply surviving. Because we are here. I think they they look so much alike tells us how far we have not come. And if you know anything about this story that you know Carol uh, Barnett on, Bryant on her deathbed recanted the whole story. We talk a lot about our schools, but we don't talk about the concentrated segregation in our schools. Our kids don't go to school with each other anymore. In some places in the United States, kids are going to school with less than white percent of their class being white. It says this, and it's one of my favorite newspaper clips, segregation in public schools ended by court, ruled unconstitutional by Supreme Court, date to end practice not set. This is 1965. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, which has one of the largest income gaps between the rich and the poor in the country. Atlanta, Georgia, a chocolate city. Flint, Michigan. I don't know if y'all know this, but these folks still don't got water. They still don't have water. In a country that's built on religious freedom, here we are. Every week in this country, a mosque is either vandalized or burned down every week in this country. Young folk having to march for their lives. Because we as adults can't protect them. Caitlyn Jenner. If this country is really concerned about trans folks, then they should be concerned about black trans women. The average life expectancy for a black trans woman in this country is 35 years old. They, we feel like we, they can just dispose of us. This country consistently breaks every treaty it signs with indigenous folks before the ink is even dry. Standing Rock is not only about water, it is about a country that consistently breaks every treaty. Every time the land is called to be sovereign, it is taken. And then they rebuild, but they don't got no grit. Okay. Prison and school pipeline. In Iowa, they had a solitary confinement box in the back of the school. Many researchers are not saying there's a school-to-prison pipeline anymore. It's just a prison in the school. 
We don't talk about people with disabilities being one of the highest forms of those who are incarcerated. And here we are. So the first step we got to do is understand whiteness. Be willing to be a co-conspirator. And then we've got to love blackness. And loving blackness, Bell Hook says, argues that loving blackness is a political act of resistance because we all have internalized racism. We all have internalized racism, regardless of the color of your skin, which operates to devalue blackness. But she argues that black people need to love themselves not in spite of their blackness, but because of their blackness. And everyone in this room needs to feel that. It is an unbelievable feeling to understand and, and know what your ancestors have done for you to be here. And if you are a white person in this room, you have to marvel at what black and brown folks have done in this society. You have to just step back. Just take a second and step back. And say, my, my word, y'all just won't stop. Y'all won't quit. the love for blackness you have to have to do this work. And that doesn't mean you don't love yourself. That means you understand and you recognize the greatness that's in front of you. And you want to build with those people. You want to love on those people and you want them to win. That's what this work is about. And you got a freedom dream with people. Robin D.G. Kelly says freedom dream is not whimsical dreams that are just like, oh, they're dreams that are built in justice work. And we dream together. We dream of a world that they say is impossible. And that's where we start. We start from a place that's so revolutionary and so much full of justice and love that if, they, if we even get of it, we're good. That's where we start. We freedom dream together in solidarity. And we struggle together. And then we embrace theory. You've got to have some theory to back your, what you're seeing up. Because if you don't have theory, then what explains the worst world to you? And so I know teachers and many folks are like, oh, theory. But theory is important. I call it your North Star. You've got to have something that grounds your work. So when the world doesn't make sense, it makes sense. I'm a critical race theorist. A critical race theorist says racism is going to be here. It's permanent. It's a structure that manipulates, that moves, that mutates from generation to year to century. That's what a critical race theorist means. So when I see injustice, I'm not going to say, oh, well, what's going on? I just don't know what's happening. Oh, I know exactly what's happening. It's mutating. It's changing. That's what theory does. Uh, neoliberalism. You've got to understand neoliberalism because if you understand neoliberalism, then you understand what's happening around the country. Why are we having all these teacher strikes? Because neoliberalism says that folks don't want to invest in public good anymore. They want to, don't want to invest in public services anymore. They want the market to be able to dictate everything. So we want to privatize everything. That's why they won't pay teachers more. That's why teachers are striking all over the country, because it's under the umbrella of neoliberalism. You've got to have something that grounds your thinking. So when the world doesn't make sense, you know it makes sense. And then when you have theory, that's when you won't blame the victims, because you understand exactly what you're seeing. Right? Feminism and black feminism is a very relevant thing right now, because feminism says we're not going to blame victims. And we're going to understand women's plight in this world. So when you start to blame a victim, you understand a system under that. That's why theory is so important. And then to be accountable. We've got to be accountable to each other. 
we've let education take the word accountable to mean surveillance students and testing students and testing you and surveillance of teachers. That's not accountability. Accountability is about justice work. I'm accountable to you when you're accountable to me for justice, for healing. That's accountability. As educators, we need to think of accountability beyond academic testing and achievement, but in terms of humans, in terms of human suffering. How do we hold teachers accountable for injustices in their classroom that they themselves are caused? How do we hold men accountable for restoring justice due to their own patriarchy? How do we hold a country accountable for restoring justice after putting children in cages and irreversible levels of toxic stress? Abolitionists teaching hold themselves accountable to their colleagues and focus on justice, love, healing, and restoring humanity. Educators, especially those with privilege, must be responsible for making sure dark children and their families win. And it is happening all over the country. All over the country right now, very it's small, it's small pockets, but it is happening. We are watching revolutionary stuff. This is out of Chicago, Black Youth 100 Project. And these are young kids, 18 to 35, and this is their future for justice. Ariel Marie out of Atlanta, Georgia, 19 years old. John King marched with her, 5,000 people she led. Black Lives Matter. Week of action in schools. Prince George County passed this resolution. They got this resolution through. The movement has arise about injustices. And they're going to start teaching kids about mass incarceration, police brutality, poverty, affordable housing, income disparity, homophobia, unjust immigration policies, gender equity. Over 100 schools in the United States took part in the week of Black Lives Matter in schools. It is happening all over the country. This young man was shot five times by the police, and now he is one of the biggest uh, activists in Pittsburgh. Dream Defenders out of Miami that says we have good kids in mad cities. This young lady, we saw her come. I mean, she just was like, where you come from? <laughs> it is happening. Do not get discouraged. Get involved because it is happening. Black Lives Matters. Ethics studies, they won. The judge ruled last summer that it was unconstitutional and it was racist to deny these individuals. Ethnic studies in Arizona, those teachers fought with their students, with alumni to keep that there, and they won. Seattle right now, they're striking again. Seattle teachers are saying we will not do standardized testing. Our kids will go outside and play. We will not be held to these accountable. And they are winning. It is, a, it is slow, it's methodical, but they are winning, and that's what abolitionists do. You don't just destroy the system. You take it down piece by piece, and it is happening all over this country. Rochester, New York. VM of uh, uh, Victorious Minds Academy is part of a suite of programs and approaches the district has uh, adopted over the last four years with the goal of recognizing and eradicating structural racism and white supremacy from the classroom, the principal's office, and the downtown headquarters. It is happening all over the country. United We Dream. This organization has one of the most intersectional mission statements I've ever seen. Yes, they understand immigrant laws, and yes, they're fighting, but they're also fighting for Black Lives Matter. They're also fighting for trans folks. They're also fighting for women. That's what this is about. And the idea is that, yeah, we're going to be all right. All oh, my life I had to fight. All oh, my life I had to fight. 
trips like God. Nazareth, I'm stuck, homie, you stuck. But if God got us, then we gon' be alright. We gon' be alright. We gon' be alright. I'm sorry, I'm almost out of my time. I was at the play, but hold on. But I want to say this. Kendrick says, we've been here before. When our pride was low, looking at the world like, where did we go? We've been here before. We're going to be all right. But I want to say something to you all. Being all right is not all right. I am tired of being just all right. We have to get out of that mindset. It is time that we think about black joy, healing, and intergenerational healing. Everyone in this room has to be thinking about how can I contribute to the ideas of black joy? How do I get there? Because if we all can find black joy, then we all can get free. And white folks, you might say, well, I can't find joy. Black joy, you can find joy. And your joy has to be wanting to see black folks win. That's your black joy. That's how this has to work. And I think we have to dream together. Afrofuturism is a place that says we're not only going to dream together, but we're going to critique this world in a way in which that we understand this world. So when we build a new world, we don't bring that other stuff with us. And dreaming and censoring black and brown and trans folks' lives. And I'm a comic book person. I use comic books with my students to have really critical conversations. Uh, Kid Code is a comic book that talks about uh, a DJ and an MC who goes around saving uh, souls. Moon Girl, she's a black uh, Latino girl who is a certified genius, and that's her best friend, the dinosaur. America is a comic book with all women superheroes who are lesbians. And then you got Black Panther. I don't think Black Panther was a perfect movie. But what it did show us is a world without whiteness. And not just not white people, but without the idea of whiteness. And that's a very powerful concept we all have to be thinking about. What would the world be without whiteness? Without the idea that we have to center whiteness? What would it be to center blackness? What would it be to center those at the margins? That's what this work has to be about. And I'll end by going right back to where I started. To any citizen of this country who figures himself responsible, particularly for those who deal with the minds and the hearts of young people, it is time for everyone in this room to go for broke. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, okay, all right, all right, let's go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so listen. Thank you. Thank y'all. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank y'all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh oh. Uh oh. All right. Thank you all. I appreciate you. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Bettina, for that. Thank you, Dr. Love. All right. Please go get her book. Um, I'm like, can I get my book right now? Pre-order. Pre-order. Okay, we're going to pre-order the book. All right. 
Uh, if we could just give her one more round of applause for that awesome, awesome speech. Okay, so it's now my duty to tell you all to go to your breakout sessions. So, starting the morning off, hype. I'm, I'm feeling good. All right. <laughs>